There it goes. All right, if you can take your seats, feel free to bring your coffee or tea with you back to your, your seats. We caffeinate you for long sermons on purpose. Make your way back to your seats and turn to Psalm 73. If you need a Bible, you can grab one off the back table. And if you're using one of our Bibles, it's going to be page 574. You're going to want a Bible so you can see the words of Scripture. We believe God's Word is living and active and God speaks when we open and read and hear. Psalm 73. If I can drink coffee while I preach, you can drink coffee while you listen to me preach. I think that's a fair deal. Psalm 73. Anybody in a Bible who's already sitting? The ushers will bring you one. Anyone? We have great ushers, they don't mind. Up there, yeah. Great. Thanks, Tay. Thank you. Anyone else? Someone up there, Tay. Yeah. Great. Anyone else? No? All right. Psalm 73. We're going to look at the whole psalm, but I want to just read the first three verses, and then I want to pray, and then we will get into it together. Psalm 73, starting in verse 1. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And Father, we pray that you would help us to process our own temptations to stumbling through this issue. Lord, that you would help us to relate to what the psalmist is feeling. And Lord, even more importantly, you would help us to follow you the way the psalmist learned to follow you. Father, we are so thankful that you help us see your better story for your world. Help us, Lord. We need to see that again because we look around the world and it doesn't look like a great story. So help us to see you. Help us to see what you're doing. Help us to see your trustworthiness. Help us to experience your presence as we walk through this life. Meet us here, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says, In case you haven't noticed, the media is all about making you envy. Have you noticed that? It's not just adverts. It's not just those trying to sell the shows or make money from the shows. The shows themselves move us to envy. They're meant to move us to envy. Social media is all about envy. Everyone who, who uses social media tends to show something on there that's meant to put their best foot forward. Look at how great my food plate looks. Look at how airbrushed perfect my children are. Here's John with hair. 
We'll do whatever we can do to put ourselves forward because there's something about wanting to be enviable that we all want. And so when we go through social media, even though we tell ourselves, or we go through watching a movie or a television, even though we tell ourselves it's just make-believe, it's just pretend, it's just a story, it's easy for us to see things and think, how come life's always better for them? I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when I watch, sometimes when I watch a, a television show or a, or a movie, I find myself really coveting because it seems like the poorest people in these shows have a better life than I do. You, you know what I'm saying? You ever felt that way? It feels like people always kind of are doing better than, than I am. And that kind of feeling, that kind of, gosh, why is that? That plagues all of us, and it has done since it plagued our first parents, Adam and Eve. Because they had the perfect environment until a serpent slithered up alongside and said, you know what, actually, there's something better that God's holding back for you. And you know the story, of course. They believed it. They bit into it, and we've been paying the consequences ever since. And we do the same thing as a kid. There is this thing in us that thinks, I deserve better than I have. And it's tough because when we walk this life, when we live this life, we look around and we see people that we think, this person's arrogant or this person's sinful or this person's wicked, or this person's apathetic, and their life still seems better than mine. And this is a common human experience, so common, that Asaph, one of the worship leaders of Israel, writes a song about it. He writes a song about envying the wicked. He writes a song about what he experiences when he looks around the world. Even when he looks around his unfaithful nation, Israel. It's interesting because I read the, only the first three verses because these first three verses, in a sense, are kind of like a mirrored outline. So the last point we're going to look at corresponds with verse 1. The second point we're going to look at corresponds with verse 2. And the, third, the first point we're going to look at corresponds with verse 3. Because here's what happens. We, like the psalmist, see a world of injustice. Notice what he says in verse 4. Speaking of the, what, whom he calls the wicked, he says, They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Which doesn't sound very nice, but it's a good way to say they're healthy and strong. He says, um, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Now, I don't know if any of you guys are into hip-hop. Nothing wrong with the genre. Great genre. But some of the secular hip-hop reflects this, doesn't it? They brag about the wickedness and the things they do and how they get away with it. And we, we look at this and we think, man, the wicked seem to have easier lives than us. Now, let me be clear, too. If a person seems to be having an easy life, that doesn't make them wicked. That's really important to understand. We need to be the kind of people that rejoice when things go well, okay? 
Christians are not meant to be baptized in lemon juice. Everything's bad, okay? So, so when things go well, we can enjoy that. It doesn't make us wicked. When life is in a season, and these are, we all know anyway, rare and short seasons, when life seems to all be going swimmingly, that doesn't mean that we are wicked. But what you have going on here is that the wicked, the, 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 their wickedness of the wicked doesn't seem to keep uh, them from ease. So, so they, can, they can sort of enjoy their wickedness, and life seems to be easier for them when they do. But also, what does he say in verse 8 and 9? He says, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Again, this is a poetic way to say that the wicked, they use their power to oppress other people. And again, in the same way that it's not an easy life doesn't mean you're wicked, having power doesn't mean you're wicked. You've heard the adage, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's not totally true. We're corrupt, and that's why power is hard for us to handle. It's a human problem, not a, not a leadership, just a leadership problem. So it's not necessarily saying that power is corrupting them, but that the corrupt are using their power for more corruption. And they seem to get away with it. And he says plainly in verse 10, listen, therefore his people, that's not God's people, but the people who, who want to follow these quote-unquote wicked, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase their riches. In other words, the wicked openly mock God. I'm getting away with it. What's God going to do? Now, we look at this, and this is what we see in our world. that happens more often maybe than we want to admit. And even if you cut yourself off from all media, even if you just surround yourself in some Christian bubble, guess what? You're still going to see it. Because you're going to see people who profess faith in Jesus do things that you're going, Jesus followers shouldn't do, and it's going to look like they get away with it. And it's hard to, to not think, well, if they do, why can't I? Maybe I can get a bit of that action. But we got to remember what the, the scripture clearly says. Galatians 6, 7, you guys probably know this one. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Reaping and sowing. Our Hindu friends call this karma. But the reality is, that, that people can openly mock God, but God will not ultimately be mocked. It, it, it doesn't work that way. Still, the problem is there. We see a world full of injustice. The psalmist sees a world full of injustice. So how does it respond? Look at verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked Every morning. What's he saying? He's saying it's pointless to do the right thing. You ever felt this way? Maybe you're in that place right now. Maybe you're in the place where, okay, I'm wanting to maybe give God a look. 
I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try not to do some of the things I know that are maybe a bit self-destructive. I'm going to make church a priority. I'm going to try to do a bit better. And you do that, it seems like everything falls apart. And you feel like, what's the point of trying? It's pointless to do the right thing. It's interesting the way he says it, in, uh, what he says in verse 14. All day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And, and I can't be sure of this, but it, I, I kind of wonder if this is him as a, as a believer in God, as someone who's trying to walk with God, experiencing even God's rebuke. Because I don't know if you've experienced this, but I've definitely experienced this. As a believer in Jesus, I can't get away with anything. Even when I'm high-handed in my sins, not only is it a heavy conviction, I almost get caught. God loves me too much to let me go off and do my own thing. And I get busted. And sometimes you're thinking, how come I always get busted? Sarah used to love to say to our kids when they would do something, that's a God spanking. <laughs> that's God catching you out. But there's something good about that, that God loves those that he chastens, right? But there's also something, how come other people seem to get away with it? And we can feel like, what's the point of doing good? Because even when I do the right thing, I don't always do the right thing. And if I don't do the right thing, I feel it in such a huge way. What else does he say? Verse 15. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. We'll come back and talk about what he's getting at in, in, a, in, a, in a deeper way in, in a minute. But basically what's happening is he's recognizing, look, I'm feeling this way, but I can't just vent it all the time. I can't say every time I feel this, otherwise it's going to stumble people. But he says in verse 16, but when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Now, what's going on here in, is, is in, in verse 15 to 17 is there's a, a turning. That the psalmist is kind of going, all I see is injustice everywhere, and I'm, I'm responding in this broken frustration, but I know that I need to turn to God. I need to go into the sanctuary of God. There's a turning, but before he gets there, you need to see there's a process going on here. His heart is changing, but it's a process, and it's a hard process. He's, he's recognized, the psalmist is recognizing that it's absolutely exhausting trying to get our head around why there's so much suffering. Isn't this like the number one objection to God? How can you believe in a God when there's so much suffering? And it's number one because as Christians, we all go, it's hard to answer. We might, we might be able to give an answer, but we're not sure if it's the answer. It's a tough one. And so even when we see that, that, that it's, it's grieving that the, we're in a world of injustice and we respond with this kind of broken type of frustration, we, we can still think, God, I know that you're the answer, but it's exhausting trying to find the answer. This is part of our, the brokenness of our frustration. And so where does the psalmist land? Verse 18. It says, truly, you set them in slippery paces, places and make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Now, he's using really poetic language. It's a little bit hard to, to interpret, but here's the bottom line. He's basically saying, God, you're going to judge them soon. They're going to think everything's fine, and then boom, judgment's going to come. 
Now, what the psalmist is saying here is right. Okay, so, so he's not coming to the wrong conclusion that God is going to judge swiftly. That is something that we see throughout Scripture. Jesus uh, underscored this. So we don't want to be the kind of fair-weather believers that, like, we don't want to ever talk about God's judgment. We don't ever want to talk about that God's going to, to judge the world or judge the wicked. We don't want to kind of a, be the kind of fair-weather Christians to go, let's ignore that. It's kind of distasteful and uncomfortable and people don't like it. Let's only talk about mercy and justice and love. Let's not talk about judgment or wrath or any of that. that that's a fair-weather Christian that isn't really paying attention to what God has said in his word. But we also, listen, don't want to miss what's going on in the psalm. That what he's saying here about God quickly judging is true, but it's also part of his broken frustration, his response of broken frustration when he sees the world so bad, when he wonders why he can't get away with anything, but they get away with everything. Part of his frustration is, God, just wipe them out now. And we see a New Testament echo of this. Remember in Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, Jesus is, is Luke chapter 9, I should say, sorry. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is, a, is basically about, Luke wants to see, he's about now to head for the final time to Jerusalem. And the rest of Luke's gospel is about him heading to the cross in Jerusalem. But what happens, but the, the people of the village did not welcome Jesus. A village he passes by, they didn't walk, welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. And when James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, Shall we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. These guys, listen. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. He's God's chosen king. They know he has all power, all might, all authority. So they're going to follow him wherever they need to follow him. But they have no clue where he's going. They have no clue that he's actually going to the cross to die for this very group of people in this village who denied him and didn't want anything to do with him. They were clueless of this. And so when they say, Lord, judge them now. Bring your judgment now. Asking for the judgment isn't wrong. The, the village did deserve fire from heaven. They did. The disciples didn't recognize who they did. And, and here's one of the, the things that's really important. If we're going to learn to not envy the wicked, if we're going to be able to be people who are different than the, those around us, if we're going to be distinct in our character as Jesus followers, we can't ignore the wickedness around us. We can't ignore the injustice. We can't throw a pat answer, well, God will deal with it someday. We have to see it. It has to bother us. We have to own up to it that it is unjust. It isn't right the way things are. We need to do that. We need to recognize, though, that when we're responding to it, almost always our response is broken. That we, even as Jesus followers, can see this and not respond in the right way. Remember what he said in verse 2? But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. Now this is the, the part that we really want to focus on today. Verses 21 and 28. See, we see a world of injustice. 
We respond with broken frustration. But this is the message of Psalm 73. We're rescued by the good God. It's not just the idea that there's going to be some sort of ultimate universe. Again, speaking back of media, some of the, some of the movies I've watched recently or TV shows, uh, the ones that have come out in like the last two years or so, there's this trend where they're, they're kind of, there's a lot of kind of hope in an ultimate universe of an ultimate justice from the universe, quote unquote, the universe. As if somehow the totality of all this vast, infinite, material universe has some personal ability to judge, which is weird. No, we don't believe in a, in a, in a, in a God, a personal God. But the universe, yeah. The stars and the dust and the black holes will somehow judge. That makes no sense. But it's because we, we are in a place where we, the, the, they're in a place like we're in a place where we see the injustice and they respond brokenly. So the only way we're going to be rescued is the way the psalmist was rescued, starting in verse 21. It says, he says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant I was like a beast towards you. What's happening here? As he goes into the sanctuary of God, as the psalmist, as Asaph is there, wanting to worship God, even though he's going, God, I don't get it, I don't like it, I wish it wasn't like this, but as he goes there, what happens? He begins to see his own brokenness. This is almost always the first thing that God does for us in rescuing us, is to show us our own brokenness. Now there's a, there's a, a process, there's a, you see what's going on here is the psalmist is growing in his understanding of the wrongness of envy. Look how it progresses, verse 2, it should be on the screen. Verse 2, right? First he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. He begins by recognizing envy affects my walk. I'm not walking in great faith in our God because I'm envying the wicked because they seem to get away with everything. And then verse 15, as we brought it up before, right? He says, if I would have, if I said, if I, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now, as you recognize, no, if I communicate my envy, I'm going to stumble God's people. So he goes from sort of thinking about how envy is affecting him to, no, this affects God's people. But then what happens in verse 22? I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. In other words, he's recognizing, God, my envy is a willful ignorance of your goodness. It's me refusing to see how good you are. It's me having more faith in the, the strength of the wicked than the strength of my creator and redeemer God. See, this is where God brings us. This is where rescue begins. Rescue begins, right? The process begins before this. And let me make sure I'm clear. God's the one initiating the whole process and bringing the whole process to pass and trying to rescue us from the envy of the wicked. It, it, it starts with us recognizing this is bad for me. I don't need to do this. It's not good for my own health to envy. It starts there. And it brings us to a place where, well, yeah, actually, and this isn't good for those around me. I don't want to drag, especially God's people down. It's not good for me to do that. But the rescue actually comes when we recognize, God, this is actually me against you. I, I, I'm actually, when I'm envying the wicked, I'm saying, just like Adam and Eve, I'm getting duped just like they were duped and thinking, you're holding back from me, God. 
because I deserve what that wicked person has, or, or I shouldn't get busted like that wicked person didn't get busted. God, you're holding back on me. My heart is actually against you. I'm like a beast. This is how God delivers us. He causes us to see our own broken hearts. The, the longer I'm a Jesus follower, the more I'm convinced of the reality of what some theologians call total depravity. Now, it means different things to different people, so I'm going to tell you what I think good total depravity means, this, this theological term. It means that there's every aspect of all creation and every aspect of my humanity has been broken by sin. Which means when I... When, when I think about something, my thoughts are broken. When I have a perspective on something, that perspective is broken. It's kind of always a little bit out of focus until God intervenes. And one of the biggest mistakes we can make as Christians in envying the wicked, especially because let's be honest, we look at the wicked and they're not always so obviously wicked, are they? One of the things that I think modern story writers are getting right is the, comp the complexity of human characters. You rarely see a hero that's perfect. You rarely see a villain that's totally broken. Why? Because in reality, all of us are, have good things because we're made in the image of God, and we have bad things because we're broken sinners. We're all that way. That's, that's better story writing, actually. It's closer to the truth. But here's the reality. When we don't see how broken we actually are, that's a sign not that we are being freed, but that we're, we're resisting rescue. There's such freedom. Not in going, oh, I'm so bad, I'm so bad, but such freedom in going, God, I am, I'm sure far worse than I even see. But you are far greater than I can imagine. This is how we're rescued from the envy of the wicked because we recognize they're blind. They're broken. So am I. And if my eyes are beginning to see and my heart's beginning to change, thank you, Lord, that you're doing this work of rescuing me. So he causes us to see our broken hearts. This is how we're rescued by our good God and away from the envy of the wicked. But also look at verse 23. He says, nevertheless, I, continued, I, I, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me in your counsel, and after, afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my, strength and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you see what's happening here? We first see the psalmist grows in his understanding of the wrongness of envy. But now we're seeing the psalmist grows in his understanding of the goodness of God. Now, at this point, some of you guys have been with us for a while. You might go, didn't you kind of teach on this, a different psalm? God help us to see the goodness of God. Yes, but these psalms, these psalms are interwoven. These themes are interwoven. But let's look, look at these closely, right? Psalm 23. Again, it's going to be on the screen. What does growing in our understanding of God's good lo goodness look like? First, it's us recognizing it's God holding on to us. Sometimes we make the mistake in the church of emphasizing us holding fast to God. Keep believing. Hold fast. Don't give up. We need to keep believing and holding fast and not giving up. Don't get me wrong. Right? Don't get me wrong. We need to do this. We see this throughout the Gospels where Jesus says, your faith has saved you. 
and you know, your faith has made you well. So there's an, an, an encouragement for us to hold fast. But the emphasis of the totality of Scripture, including the Gospels, is not so much how our, what our grip is on God, but God's grip on us. He's holding us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's just kind of waiting for you to get it right? Or do you believe that God is holding on to you, steering you, pulling you the right direction? You guys ever read that poem, that cliche Christian poem, Footprints in the Sand? Maybe you guys have it in your house. You know what I'm talking about? Footprints in the Sand? You guys know that poem? Mine would be called Skid Marks in the Sand. This is where God drug me into his will because I'm so stubborn. But you know what? He's holding on to us. This is what the psalmist is recognizing. God, even when I'm tempted to enter the wicked, the wicked, even when I was just about to slip, then I realize, whoa, God's holding me. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. Afterwards, you receive me into glory. I want to focus on you guide me with your counsel, but what's the idea there? Lord, you lead me. God is leading me step by step. Just read it this morning. The second part of Psalm 119, a little bit behind on my Bible reading. I want to confess that now. But I caught up. Psalm 119, the second part of Psalm 119, Psalm 105, right? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Not God's word is a map of my whole life laid out. But here's the next step. God guides us. Why does he do that? Why not just say, here's what it's going to look like for everybody? One, because we'd run the other way. <laughs> but two, because he wants us to acknowledge him. He wants us to know him, enjoy him every step of the way. What else does the psalmist say? Verse 25. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You know what this is? This is for the psalmist, God becoming his supreme affection. Here's one of the other mistakes we can make as Christians. We do this all the time. We think, I gotta stop loving the world. I gotta stop loving all these things that aren't as good as God. And we're trying to push down Competing affections, but that's not doesn't get rid of those competing affections. You know how you get rid of those competing affections? To let the affection you have for God go to the top. The only way we overcome our wrong affections for sinful bad things is to have a new affection for the God who's worthy. We grow in God's goodness as we learn, or we know we can grow in God's goodness as we learn that God, my affection for you is more than my affection for fill in the blank. I, I want you more than I want this thing. I want you more than I want that thing. I want you more than this good gift that you have given me. I want you more than this bad sin that you tell me to stay away from. I want you more, God. That's where my heart is going. That is what God does for us as he reveals his goodness to us. This is what the psalmist was experiencing. He says, my flesh and my heart fail, verse 26, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This, this fits with what he says at the end of verse 24, afterward you receive me to glory. You see, growing in our understanding of God's goodness is growing in our assurance that God's going to bring us to this glorious destination. I, I love the fact that in verse 26 is when he says, man, I'm gonna fail. I, I don't have what it takes to make it to the end, but God, you have me. The God who holds me is the God who leads me. The God who leads me is the God who's becoming my supreme affection. The God who's becoming my supreme affection is going to keep me from stumbling and present me 
present me faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. Jude 24 and 25. He's going to do that. How do we overcome the wicked? We're rescued by God's goodness as we learn that he's walking with us through the pain. Again, Psalm 119, I read this a couple days ago, where it says, it is good that I was afflicted, that I would, I would glory in your ways. Friends, we learn to not envy the wicked because we recognize that what they are trying to create through their corruption, through their oppression, through their selfish indulgence, what they're trying to create is what we already have in Jesus. I want you to think about the thing that you tend to envy most about the wicked. Is it the, what looks like sexual freedom of the world? Is it the material prosperity? Is it the, the ability to kind of just be fully confident in who you are? Is it the idea that there's no cons ultimate consequences for your actions? What is it that you would, are tempted to envy about the wicked? Because all those things have something better in Christ. Do you realize even our desire for sex within marriage, that is really a desire for an intimacy, a closeness, that is, is really just a shadow that points to what we're going to have with Christ forever? Not in the physical sense, but in, in something even greater than the physical sense. And if you've been married for a long time, or if you've had seasons where in your marriage the physical couldn't be there, you know, listen, you know that intimacy can still be there and sometimes even be better. If you're envying this, this desire for material prosperity, really some of that comes from a fear of lack. I'm afraid of lacking something. Well, guess what? When, when glory comes, when heaven and earth come together, you know what's going to happen? No lack whatsoever. I don't know how he's going to do it, but somehow there's going to be trees on the new earth that produce bacon. And no pig had to die. I'm sure of this. Maybe it'll be like a bacon-avocado kind of thing, combination. That would be really nice. There's going to be no lack. Even this idea of I want to be able to, to sort of glory, I want to be able to sort of be confident that I am exactly who I'm meant to be and nothing can change that. Guess what? That's only available eternally in Christ. See, we envy the wicked. You know why? Because we forget what we've already been given by a covenant relationship with God. And the psalmist is getting rescued by this good God. He's being reminded by this good God that this God is showing him, man, listen, you, you're, you're still as broken as everyone else who's out there, but I'm rescuing you. And, and you feel like you're, you're wondering why do people get away with this and, and what's my hope? And I'm showing you how I'm with you every step of the way. I'm walking with you through the pain. But also look at what it says in verse 22. Oh, not verse 22, sorry, in verse 27. In verse 27, here's what it says. 
For behold, those who are far from you shall all perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Now, if anybody of you have uh, the old King James, the authorized version, you know what it says is, uh, when it says who is unfaithful, it says something along the lines of who go a whoring. kind of language that we aren't comfortable using nowadays, but this is kind of, it, it's important for us, I think, to see this because there's something dramatic that the psalmist is, is, is drawing here. In a sense, he's saying, there's two stories that people want to tell. The wicked, the lost, those who don't want to know God, the story they're telling is this, it's the story of the wandering whore. Forgive me if that sounds too harsh, but that's the implication here. It's the story of someone who, 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 like Hosea, the whole Testament book of Hosea, was married to a prophet of God, married to whom God chose for them, and decides, nah, I want to give over to be given over to whoredom. I want to have many multiple partners instead. That's one story. Because everyone who doesn't say, Lord, I want to just worship you supremely, I want to love you supremely, everyone is doing that. All of us have done that and even do that when we don't say, Lord, I want you to be supreme in my life. We all do that. But God gives us a better story. We have a better story. Our story is not, hey man, the wicked get away with everything, you better get what you can get out of it. This world, there's no justice, you better get whatever you can get out of it. That's not the story that we tell. The story we tell, look, he says it in verse 28, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Notice that I may tell of all your works. One of the things that, that, that can help us when we are envying the wicked is to remember and to tell that better story. That doesn't mean that when someone's enjoying something nice that we go, oh, well, I got something better than that. It means we give thanks and we glorify God for the, that common grace goodness that they're enjoying. And we say, that's amazing. I'm so glad you got that. Or they say to you, you should go and take this holiday there. Well, I, that might happen. We'll see. Or aren't you, doesn't it bother you that you work all the time and you don't get this lovely holiday that we're getting? No, not, not too much because the truth is I know that one day I'm going to have an eternal holiday. And it's going to be glorious. Or you see that person that just seems to be so confident in what they think and how they present themselves. And they tell you, you know, you got to just have some faith in yourself. You got to learn to love yourself. Come on. Feel better about yourself. And you go, you know, I don't have to feel good about myself because I know that I am loved with an everlasting love. And even when I fail by my own standards, I'm still accepted because of Jesus. The way we overcome the envy of the wicked is recognizing what God's already given us, how he's rescued us. This is the story we tell, Romans chapter 5. I'm going to ask the music team to come back up. If Johnny's not singing the band, he'll be. 
And let's let this verse and this song begin to prepare us to go to the Lord's table together today. Because this is, this is part of the better story. Listen, for while we were still weak, envying the wicked, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. That's the theme of many Hollywood movies. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, our Hollywood blockbuster is not the hero rescuing the victim. It's the hero transforming the enemy. That's a better story. That God rescues us and changes us. That's a better story. If you want to stop envying the wicked, the way we do that is to recognize you already have a great story that's being written right now. It was written because of Christ. It's being written because of Christ. And when, you, when we begin to enjoy this good God, you know what ends up happening? We provoke people to envy. People wonder, why is it that you don't seem to have to have all that we have? Why? Well, it's not that I don't like that or I don't think that would, could be enjoyable. It's that God's given me something better. He's given me his only begotten son. We don't have membership at Servants Church, so you don't have to be a member to partake of communion with us, okay? Communion is about believers in Jesus remembering what he did to make them God's family. Remembering his spilt blood, which cleanses us from all the sins we've done against God. Remembering his broken body, which reminds us of the cost of following him and what he's called us to, to be one, even though we're broken. And so when we, we take this little bit of crushed grape and we, drink, uh, we eat this little bit of unleavened bread, we remember and we proclaim the sufficiency of what Jesus has done for us until the day that Jesus comes back for us and makes all things right. So it's a time for us to give thanks. It's a time for us to celebrate. It's a time for us to remember that we are one because of Jesus. So if you believe in Jesus, if your faith is in the Jesus of the Bible, that he is God's son, that he did die for your sins, that he did rise from the dead, he's alive today, he's ascended to heaven. If you really believe him, if you trust him, you're our brother and sister, we want you to celebrate with us. So if you're not, yet a Christian. I'd love to know why not. Seriously. I don't mean that in a harsh way or I'm not going to confront you. Just, I'd love for you to come up to me after and say, I'm not a Christian because I'd just love to know. It'll help me to know how to pray. And who knows, maybe I'll even have a, an answer to what is keeping you from putting your faith in Jesus. If you have no reason not to be a Christian and you're here today and you're going, I need to put my faith in Jesus, then put your faith in Jesus. It's not complicated. It's simply recognizing that the Jesus of the Bible is who he said he is, that he's alive, that he's real, and that he did what he said he did. When he died, he died for your sins. When he rose from the dead, he guaranteed you a place in God's family. Pray to him and say, God, save me. I know it's you I've sinned against. Thank you that you died for me. Save me. Ask him to save you. Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, I will in no way cast out.
And if you do that today, you can partake in communion with us together. So we sing this last song. Let's uh, let the, the song itself remind us of the good that Jesus has done for us, that God's done for us through Christ. You can go ahead and begin to open the packets. They're a bit fiddly. One of these days we'll go back to uh, communion the way we used to, but for now we're still doing these. But you can begin to open. Just hold your portions, though, to the end, and we'll all partake together. Let's sing this song together.